Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, you're watching CNN. I'm Zane Asher in New York. In a critical moment in the war, the battle for the Donbass region of Ukraine is underway. President Zelensky is promising to fight on against a large-scale Russian ground offensive. We are already seeing efforts to break through Ukraine's front lines in three regions right now. This video you're seeing on your screen shows a long column of military vehicles heading from the Russian border toward the city of Izium, where Russian troops have already been gathering. In the besieged city of Mariupol, this steel plant is a holdout for the city's resistance fighters. Russian forces have given them a second deadline to surrender. Ukraine says it's under attack by Russian forces and smoke is pouring out of it, as you can see in this video here. In the basement, hundreds of people are taking shelter. Uh, this video you're about to see apparently shows inside, conditions inside. Uh, CNN has been unable to verify when or where this video was shot, but most of the people you can actually see are women, their children, they're the elderly as well. We're told they have been there for weeks and that there is a shortage of food where they are as well. Today, President Biden speaks to U.S. allies and partners to discuss how exactly to hold Moscow accountable. The White House is indicating plans to impose new sanctions on Russia and expand the current ones as well. Matt Rivers has more on the battle in the Donbass region. And I really think yesterday and today mark a turning point in this war between Russia and Ukraine. Yesterday, really the first time that we heard across the board from Ukrainian officials that this Russian offensive that we have been waiting for for days, if not weeks at this point, after Russia's failed attempt in the northern part of the country to take the capital of Kyiv, Ukrainian officials basically saying across the board now that this renewed offensive by Russia in the east has begun. We heard it first yesterday from regional officials in places like Luhansk, uh, which is part of this Donbass region that Russia is clearly aiming to capture in the coming weeks. And then we also heard it from President Zelensky himself, who said that this new phase of this war that has gone on for roughly two months now uh, has entered into. Uh, what we are seeing is places like Krimina, for example, a, a Ukrainian city in the east that officials have said has now fallen to Russian forces under a huge influx of artillery, tanks, troops, with Ukrainian officials saying their troops have retreated strategically, as they say, to fight another day. However, we have not seen the kind of clear across-the-board breakout that I'm sure Russian officials were hoping for in the first in the first days of this new offensive in the east. There is still fighting going on. Ukrainian officials say that their lines are holding in other places. But I do think that this is going to be a conflict moving forward and is not going to be measured in, in hours or days. I mean, you're looking at a conflict that will go on for weeks. This will be a much different campaign than the first weeks of the war that we saw in the northern part of the country. The terrain in the east is much more different, much more wide open, not so prone to the kind of skirmish attacks that we saw between uh, Russian and Ukrainian forces. So it remains to be seen how this will play out. But what we're hearing across the board from Ukrainian officials that this will be a bigger battles, they think, than what we saw in the beginning part 
uh, of this conflict. Meanwhile, in the southern city of Mariupol, uh, there remains just a horrific state of siege in that city with Ukrainian defenders saying they still are holding on to one main pocket of resistance that centers on the Azovstal steel plant, where Ukraine's defense officials say that is where the majority of the fighters, and it's an unknown number of fighters, but that's where their fighters remain putting up this resistance. What we found out, uh, according to uh, some conversations that CNN has had with people inside that steel plant, is that there are also civilians in there. Uh, there are, are, could be hundreds of civilians, you know, mothers, children, uh, that are basically alongside the fighters in that steel plant, and yet they have no way out. No humanitarian corridors have been agreed to between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Russia has laid down a new ultimatum that has since come and gone for uh, for Ukrainian resistance fighters to to lay down their arms and surrender. And so where this goes from here, we're not exactly sure. But what is clear is that there is no way for the civilians, not only in that steel plant, but also the tens of thousands of civilians that remain in Mariupol to safely evacuate from that city, even though it is desperately needed at this point. The siege of that southern city continues. Zane. In Mariupol, Russia appears to be intensifying its attacks on the steel plant where Ukrainian defenders continue to hold out. Right now in Mariupol, at the Azovstal steel factory, hundreds of civilians are sheltering. Among them are children of all ages, women, the elderly, and the families of Mariupol defenders. They are sheltering in the basements and bunkers from the Russian world. Matthew Chance has more. These are the kids Ukrainian officials say are at ground zero in the battle for Mariupol. This video, posted on government social media, but which CNN can't verify, shows dozens of children said to have been sheltering for weeks in a basement in the city where Ukrainian forces are holding out against Russian attacks. Kids distracting themselves from the battles above. We play with these toys, build things and imagine things, this little boy says. Do you want to get out of here, they're asked. Yes, yes, they all shout. But the adults here know that's unlikely to happen anytime soon. I'm with my three children and conditions are not the best here, this parent says. There's no way to study, not much food, and my kids' teeth are starting to spoil, she says. But the alternative, surrender to Russia, may be worse. Above ground, Mariupol has borne the brunt of Russia's brutal invasion. Latest images show the extent of the devastation. One Ukrainian commander has called this hell on earth. But troops defending the city, concentrated at the vast Azovstal steelworks, are refusing to surrender. Ukrainian officials say they will fight until the end. The situation in Mariupol is both dire militarily and heartbreaking. Uh, the city doesn't exist anymore. It seems from the way Russian army behaves in Mariupol, they uh, decided to raise the city to the ground at any cost. But Ukrainian forces in Mariupol are making sure that erasure is painful. This video shows a counterattack against Russian forces by the Ukrainian Azov Battalion, with their soldiers throwing grenades at Russian forces in the city. 
It is an act of resistance, but the outcome may be unchanged. Already, the human toll of this battle for Mariupol has been appalling, with thousands, including many civilians, killed. But Ukrainian officials say another Russian offensive is now underway, posing another deadly threat to those trapped inside. Matthew Chance, CNN, New York. Cedric Layton joins us live now. He's a CNN military analyst and the founder and chairman of strategic risk management firm Cedric Layton Associates. Cedric, good to see you again. Let's talk about the battle intensifying overall in the Donbass region. Obviously, war has been going on in that region for about eight years now. But what do the Ukrainians need to do at this point to put up the kind of resistance that is needed now? Well, Zane, good morning to you. This uh, is I think the biggest thing that they can do is preserve their military forces uh, and, of course, the equipment uh, not only that they have right now, but that is being sent to them uh, from uh, the NATO countries and from the United States. Uh, this is, a, I think, going to be the pivotal battle for uh, Ukraine phase two of this invasion. Uh, the first pivotal battle, of course, was the one for Kyiv, uh, and that uh, the Ukrainians did uh, very well at, uh, considering everything that they had to deal with and the imbalance of forces uh, that they were dealing with. In the East, the challenges are, are pretty pretty big uh, for the Ukrainians because of the way the supply lines work for them. Uh, and the Russians have some advantage there, but they also have their challenges. Their ability to reconstitute their forces is something that uh, you know we'll be seeing whether or not they can do that. Uh, the other thing that we need to look at from the Russian standpoint is how fast and how far they're going to advance. Are they going to take just the eastern part of the country or are they going to try to take even more? Uh, I think right now the, the betting is that they will uh, stick to the east for the most part. But if they can gain an advantage and encircle the Ukrainian forces, they're going to do that. And that brings me to my next question. I mean, if they if they succeed in the Donbass region, do they then make another attempt at Kyiv? Yes, I think they would. I think that what they will do, if they succeed in the Donbass, uh, I think the next target would be a town uh, like Dnipro. Uh, they could also potentially uh, encircle uh, Kiev, uh, excuse me, Kharkiv, and uh, move then, uh, you know, once they do that, potentially move to Kiev. If they see an opportunity or any weakness in the defenses of the Ukrainian capital uh, that they can exploit, they'll do that. Uh, but they're going to have a, a difficult time uh, turning uh, into a, that kind of a, a movement. So they'd have to move basically uh, from both the north uh, and the southeast toward Kiev if they did this. Uh, but it, right now, their main objective uh, has turned to, to the east. And I think Dnipro and uh, Kharkiv are the two areas that they're going to be focused on at the moment. Obviously, the U.S. is sending more military aid as a other countries, including Japan, etc. But at this point in time, do the Ukrainians have the necessary weaponry and the necessary ammunition to sustain this kind of intense battle in the Donbass region? I think the Ukrainians would answer that question saying that we can never have enough. Uh, and I think they're right. Uh, they you know, have some fairly good supplies. Uh, you know, the fact that 40,000 rounds uh, of ammunition uh, associated with the howitzers uh, will be coming their way, that, uh, that is, uh, of course, a major element there. Uh, but they're using uh, uh, ammunition at the rate of 
uh, you know, many, many rounds per day, rounds that would normally be expended in a week's time as opposed to a, a daily rate. So uh, they can they have to be resupplied on a continual basis. It's kind of like uh, the Berlin airlift in the 1940s, uh, but this is, you know, a weapons sustainment issue, uh, not a humanitarian relief flight effort, uh, which that one was, of course, back then. Uh, so this is something where they're going to have to really be careful in how they use the, all of their resources, whether it's weapons, whether it's troops, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, other aspects of, uh, you know, of the information warfare campaign. Uh, so this is uh, going to be a very big thing for them to do, uh, but they're going to have to, uh, you know, turn and pivot as the Russians do and to try to anticipate Russia's moves as uh, much as they possibly can. The Russians have added more troops to the eastern part of Ukraine, obviously, but how long can they sustain that for? How long can they sustain? We've talked about the Ukrainian side, but in terms of the Russians, because you think about the hit that this has taken on the Russian economy, they're in dire straits as well. That's right. And uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting question. So when you look at the pre-invasion figures for the Ukrainian and Russian forces and you put them against each other, uh, in essence, you're dealing with uh, about, a, you know, the Ukrainians have about the, a tenth the size of defense budget, for example. Uh, that's, of course, pre-invasion and all of that, you know, has flown out the window now that the invasion has occurred. Um, but uh, yes, the Russians have significant challenges. Uh, as the sanctions take effect, uh, it's going to have a major impact on the Russians' ability to move their forces forward. Uh, we can see, uh, I think, some uh, challenges to their logistics. Uh, you know, obviously, intangibles like morale uh, and unit cohesion become big factors. Uh, the fact that the Russians have appointed one single commander uh, to run this operation, uh, finally, you know, from a military perspective, uh, that, uh, you know, also speaks volumes. So he is going to uh, probably try to rein in uh, as much control as he possibly can. Uh, but uh, there are certain problems that you can't fix overnight. Logistics uh, being one of those, and of course finances writ large, are going to be a big issue because as the Russians uh, start not to be able to pay their troops or not to be able to pay for right. uh, supplies going forward from other countries, that will be a, a huge issue for them. And that could stall the invasion. How is it that Mariupol still hasn't technically fallen yet? I think it's. Uh, I think one word to sum that up, Zane, is the word grit. Uh, the grit of the defenders, uh, you know, whether it be Ukrainian Marines or uh, the Azov Battalion, uh, those are significant elements in this. Uh, and the other thing I, I've also noticed is that when it comes to the Azovstal plant, the big steel plant uh, that uh, Matt Rivers talked about in his reporting, uh, that uh, plant is built to withstand all kinds of uh, external uh, forces to include potentially even built uh, to protect against nuclear war. It was obviously a Cold War uh, relic uh, that's uh, you know been used uh, you know up until now as a as a steel plant. Uh, that um, that effort, I think, uh, you know, back from the Soviet days, is paying a, you know kind of ironic dividends for the Ukrainians in that they're able to stay there, they're able to 
uh, also fight the Russians off, then the Russians have a, a reluctance. They're not quite sure how to go in and uh, subjugate that particular area. And that's, uh, that's also going to be a problem. They're figuring out how to do that. And uh, it's taking time for them to do that. Uh, and frankly, the Ukrainians are, uh, in essence, accomplishing a major goal in, in this operation because they're tying up a lot of Russian forces in the Russian effort to capture Mariupol. And in that sense, the Ukrainians are succeeding, although ultimately I believe Mariupol will fall, uh, but it will be at a very, very high cost to both sides. All right. Uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you so much, CNN uh, military analyst. Right, still to come here, the IMF calls the war in Ukraine an economic event akin to a global earthquake. It is slashing its growth outlook for this year and next. Plus, rising inflation and no safety net. Latin America getting hit hard by higher food and energy prices as the war in Ukraine intensifies. That story next. Welcome back. A cautious day in global markets as the war in Ukraine takes a dangerous new turn. President Zelensky saying the battle for the Donbass region has now begun. He says Ukrainian troops will not surrender one inch of territory. U.S. stocks on track for a third day of losses as investors monitor the latest war developments. European markets are beginning their trading week in the red as well. You see all of those down arrows across your screen. Stocks under pressure as global bond yields rise again. The yield on the benchmark at U.S. 10-year Treasury is hitting fresh three-year highs. Yields currently above 2.9%. German yields are hitting seven-year highs as well. Uh, Twitter shares also pulling back pre-market after a 7% rally yesterday. Shares rose Monday amid reports that buyout firm Apollo Global Management may help finance Elon Musk's bid to buy the company and take it private. And after the closing bell, investors will get closely watched results from IBM and Netflix as well. More firms are set to update investors on the Ukraine war's impact on business in their first quarter earnings statements as well. Also today, the IMF is cutting its global economic growth outlook for this year and next year because of the war in Ukraine, as well as ongoing efforts by central banks to tame rising inflation. Anna Stewart joins us live now. So the IMF, Anna, slashing global growth outlook in half. Uh, Just walk us through the key headlines coming out of this report. Yeah, this is a very significant downgrade. They're expecting global growth of just 3.6% this year. That is a big downgrade from the estimate just in January, 0.8% less growth than they were expecting just a few months ago. And of course, the situation when we look at Ukraine and Russia specifically, um, much more severe contraction there for Ukraine. A double-digit contraction of 35% for Russia, coming in at uh, minus 8.5%. And of course, the impact of that and what we're seeing in terms of commodity prices relating to Ukraine and Russia means inflation is going up across the board. And they've got lots of projections on that as well. Now, the war in Ukraine is the main drag on this forecast. No surprises there at all. But there are some other factors. And I would love to highlight, actually, um, the slowdown in China because GDP there is now expected to come in at 4.4% this year. Now, that is a significant downgrade from the last IMF projection, but also it really undershoots Beijing's official target uh, by over a percentage point. And that, of course, as lockdowns continue in China. So this outlook makes for particularly grim reading. Zane? Yeah, and it's also important to note this outlook is based on the assumption that the war doesn't escalate further. What happens to this outlook if Russia's huge energy sector is targeted by sanctions as well? 
Yeah, the adverse scenario with an escalation of sanctions on Russia, of course, including uh, embargoes and oil and gas, sees a much more severe contraction uh, for those economies, but also a much bigger decrease in their estimation for global growth. For instance, they say global GDP in that scenario would decrease by 2% by 2023. And for Europe, which is more exposed, particularly when we talk about Russian energy, of course, that comes to to 3% decrease in GDP. Um, It gets into a lot of detail about what it expects in terms of the volumes of Russian oil and gas that would come off the market. But it's looking at the prices that I think is really interesting. It then sees in this very severe scenario, of course, um, and only in the scenario, it sees Russian oil prices, sorry, overall oil prices up 10% this year. And that is on top of what we're already seeing now. And for natural gas, prices up 20%. That, of course, has a huge impact on inflation and on the cost of living. But it's a particularly stark outlook uh, for ad- sort of advancing economies, particularly when we're looking at food and cost of living. Zane? All right, Anna Stewart, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, storing inflation also hitting many Latin American countries hard, which is, of course, fueling public anger there. Stefano Pozzaban has more. In the slum of Pamplona Alta, in the outskirts of Lima, Elena Rodriguez sets off shopping for her lunch service. Rodriguez works as a cook in a soup kitchen, preparing meals for some of the most vulnerable residents of the slum. But lately... Even a simple soup has become too pricey. Before things were accessible, everything, vegetables, potatoes, now all that is very expensive. Prices have gone up so much, I don't know what to do anymore. Rodriguez says she started cutting down on meats to keep her cooking at an affordable price. But her situation is far from alone. In the Brazilian city of Rio de Janeiro, her colleague Antonio Gilmar has a similar recipe. Poor people can only eat fish, sausages and chicken. They can forget about meat. Inflation triggered by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and by rising oil prices around the world is hitting hard in Latin America, where millions are exposed to rising food prices with no safety net to fall back on. Peru's inflation in March reached the highest level in 26 years. Well, Brazil had last seen these levels of inflation when it created a new currency to escape an inflationary wave in the 1990s. In Argentina, long the textbook case on hyperinflation, President Alberto Fernandez launched a new offensive against an old foe. On Friday, we start a new war. It's the war against inflation. Prices are spiking just as economies were beginning to recover from the impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns. According to the United Nations, an additional 14 million Latin Americans have gone hungry since 2019. And thousands have taken to the streets, be it in Brazil, where inflation will play a key role in the presidential elections later this year, or in Peru, where at least six people died during a general strike against rising fuel prices. In Pamplona Alta, Rodriguez has managed somehow to fill her pots and lunch will be served for now. Outside her kitchen, the pots are empty, filled only with cries of anger. Hunger awaits us. Stefano Pozzan reporting there. Right, still to come, the ultimate test for Ukrainian troops as the battle for Donbass begins. A report from Kyiv after the break.
Welcome back. The battle for the Donbass region is underway. Vladimir Zelensky is promising Ukrainians will fight on. He's thanking what he calls the country's heroic towns for standing firm against Russian invaders. Officials in the eastern region of Luhansk are urging civilians to evacuate, saying there are no safe places left at this point in time. We're already seeing efforts to break through Ukraine's front lines in three regions in particular. Uh, this video shows a long column of Russian military vehicles heading towards the city of Izium, where Russian troops are already gathering. Uh, CNN's Ed Lamadera joins us live now from Kyiv. So, uh, Ed, let's start with um, Mariupol, because obviously there, that city has put up a very fierce resistance, but particularly in this steel plant where you've got a lot of soldiers, a lot of women, a lot of children hiding underground, and the steel plant is being targeted by the Russians at this point. Walk us through that. You know, we really should kind of pause and, and take into account that the Ukrainian forces there have put up a fight in Mariupol for uh, more than a month and a half now, which is really a, a testament to, to their strength and what they've been able to do. But as each hour goes by, the news seems to get more grim. Um, we are uh, told that there are a number of uh, military units left inside this uh, steel plant, maybe as many as a thousand people, but also with the civilians inside, including children. Uh, there was video released of, the, of that scene inside the steel, the steel plant yesterday. Just a few hours ago, Russian military officials were saying that there had been an offer of a, a surrender um, and a deadline of uh, that passed about several hours ago, about four, four and a half hours ago. Uh, no indication that the forces inside that steel plant, the Ukrainian forces, have accepted that surrender offer. They have been saying for days that they would fight until the end. Uh, but it is a grim situation inside that city as the last vestiges of Ukrainian forces continue to hold on as long as, as, long as they can. And let's talk about the battle that's... Uh intensifying in the Donbass region. What do the Ukrainians need right now, especially from the international community, as uh, the war in that part of the country really heats up? Well, Zane, this is going to be a, a very different kind of battle than we saw in the suburbs and the areas north of Kyiv. This is more wide open space. Uh, Ukrainian forces have been saying they need uh, artillery equipment, long-range uh, weaponry that can uh, fight back against the Russian forces that have really been pummeling the Ukrainian forces over the last 24 hours with, with artillery. The idea here being that the Russians are trying to soften up Ukrainian forces on the ground to allow for an, an easier ground movement from their forces. Uh, but what we've seen over the last 24 hours is some back and forth is and, and, and some struggle over various of the small villages in that eastern Ukrainian area. But this is going to be uh, a, a, a battle and fights that will take some time, that will be very intense, very different from what we have seen already. Um, and this is part of this strategy from Russian forces to really focus on this Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. And we should also point out that it really extends over this land bridge area over the Crimean Peninsula and toward the cities of Hershon and Mykolaiv. And down in Mykolaiv in the, in the south, pretty much straight south to the coast from where we are here in Kyiv, that is also a city that has seen constant attacks over the last four or five days as well. So it's, uh, you know, this new renewed fighting and intense fighting is really taking place in various uh, regions of the country right now. All right, Ed Lavendera, live for us there. Thank you so much. 
As fighting escalates in the east, as Edna Landero was just talking about, so does the humanitarian crisis as well. Millions of refugees have already fled to neighboring countries in Europe. The White House recently announced that it would welcome up to 100,000 refugees to the United States. One humanitarian agency, Welcome.us, is already working to support refugees in America. Founded in August 2021 in response to the Afghan refugee crisis, the organization has launched a new initiative to help Ukrainian and Afghan refugees rebuild in the United States. Nazanin Ash joins us live now. She's the CEO of Welcome.us. Nazanin, thank you so much for being with us. So President Biden actually announced back in March, I think it was, that um, the U.S. was expecting about 100,000 refugees from Ukraine and also roughly around 75,000 from Afghanistan. That's actually a much larger number than the U.S. typically welcomes in any given year. What sort of pressure does that put on uh, resettlement refugee agencies? Thank you so much for having me, Zane, and thanks so much for covering such an important topic. You're so right to point to how much the speed and scale of arrivals this year in response to really extraordinary crises overseas, you know, the fall of the Afghan government, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, these have triggered massive displacement events at a scale and speed um, not seen in, in decades. And what you have happening in the United States right now is the Biden administration is set over the course of fiscal year 2022 to receive orders of magnitude more refugees than were received in fiscal year 21, where over the course of the entire year, just over 11,000 refugees were resettled here in the United States. And this year, as you reported, we're expecting close to 80,000 Afghans. Um, The administration has uh, committed to admitting over um, at least 100,000 Ukrainians. And that's on top of the Biden administration's um, commitment to admit 125,000 refugees from global crises worldwide. So it does put tremendous pressure on uh, the resettlement infrastructure here, especially after the extraordinary um, capacity constraints um, uh, faced over the uh, last five years when refugee numbers declined so significantly. I think what we've discovered at Welcome.us is while um, there are significant capacity constraints to overcome, they can best be overcome and in fact, in many ways are easily overcome when we tap into the extraordinary capacity of our American communities, our civic organizations and our private sector. Um, When a refugee comes into the US, let's say one of the 100,000 that the US is welcoming from Ukraine, they come here, they don't have a professional professional network. They may not have any friends here. They may not know anyone. Um, In many cases, they don't really bring that much with them because obviously that would be too cumbersome. And on top of that, perhaps there's a language barrier, perhaps their degrees that they obtained in Ukraine may or may not translate uh, to the United States. So what is the greatest need, especially from a professional perspective? It's such a good question. As all of us saw when we watched images of Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine, or when we saw Afghan allies boarding evacuation flights in Afghanistan, refugees are often carrying with them only what they can carry. And as you've seen with Ukrainian mothers fleeing with their children, if you're carrying children, that's very little indeed in addition to your child. So they're arriving here with uh, with 
everything needed to restart their lives from the need for housing, the need for basic household supplies, um, you know, clothing, um, an initial uh, initial cash support to be able to um, cover initial expenses. And then, as you said, refugees often arrive with a wide variety of professional and educational backgrounds. And finding a job and securing employment is one of the most critical elements to their stability and economic progress. And what we know from the refugee experience is that they're extraordinarily successful. You know, over 90% are self-sufficient within 180 days. And that's very much because so many American communities and state and local governments really see the value of refugees and the professional certifications and educational backgrounds that they bring. The private sector really sees that. We're hosting an employment exchange right now for refugees that has over 50,000 jobs posted on it at every skill level and every corner of the country posted by private sector partners, large companies and small local companies who are eager to tap into refugee skill sets um, and capacity. Because, you know, at a time like this, just going back to the private sector, as you just touched on, at a time like this with when it comes to sort of resettling refugees, you would think that that would be the responsibility of government. But do you believe that it is equally the responsibility of government and also the private sector as well? I mean, who do you think should sort of um, who do you think is more responsible rather for making sure that these refugees have what they need in terms of resettling from a professional perspective? So it's such an interesting question because I think it is the opportunity of government and it's the opportunity of the private sector and it's the opportunity of our American communities to welcome refugees. It's certainly the responsibility of government to make decisions about how many refugees we admit to ensure that they've received thorough security and background checks, which they do, that they've been reviewed for their need for humanitarian protection. These are all the responsibilities of government and indeed government frequently provides the initial resources for refugees to rebuild their lives. But it's the opportunity of our American communities and our American private sector to benefit from the contributions of these newcomers. We're seeing states like Vermont pass legislation dedicating resources in their budgets in order to attract newcomers to the state because attracting newcomers and welcoming them robustly is a win-win for everybody. They have entrepreneurship rates that are 50% higher than native populations. They're job creators. They are. Um, they have higher um, uh, graduate high school graduation, home ownership, college graduation rates than native populations. They are really um, an extraordinary benefit to the communities that welcome them. So I see it very much as an opportunity, not only a responsibility. And that's why we see so many state and local governments stepping up. And in fact, American communities and state and local governments and the private sector, you know, they often are the first to put their hands up to welcome refugees. We conducted a poll recently with more in common and over 90 million Americans had or re already or were actively seeking opportunities to help welcome newcomers. That's the outpouring of support that we've tapped into to support Afghan newcomers. And it's the outpouring of support that we know will tap into to ensure that Ukrainian arrivals also receive a warm welcome here. It's such a beautiful thing when the community really comes together to rally around and support people who need it the most. Uh, Nazadin Ash, life for us. Thank you so much for being with us.
All right, still to come here, explosions hit schools in Kabul, leaving several people dead and more in the hospital. We'll have a live report with full details next. Right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. At least six people were killed in Afghanistan's capital following explosions at a high school and an educational center as well. Seven children were hospitalized. It happened in a part of Kabul that's home to a Shia minority group that has been the target of previous attacks. CNN's Awa Damon is joining us live now from Istanbul. So Awa, what more do we know about this attack and also who's responsible as well? Well, there haven't been any claims of responsibility at this point just yet, Zane, but you can only imagine how devastating this has been for the residents of Kabul and for those parents that said goodbye to their children this morning, most likely told them they loved them, wished them a happy day at school, only to then be confronted with this sort of violence and this sort of fear as so many of them tried to figure out exactly what had happened to their child. We do know that at least six people have been killed Dozens more have been injured, and it appears as if two specific locations were the targets uh, of these attacks, one being a high school and the other being what's described as an educational center. So where people that weren't necessarily enrolled in school but wanted to take uh, classes for their, their own education could go and have access to that. Getting information has been very difficult. What we heard from uh, numerous people on the ground was that the Taliban was preventing uh, journalists from going in, covering the aftermath of all of this, filming, getting images of what had actually taken place. But when you look at the few visuals that have managed to come out, it is absolutely hair-raising, streets drenched with blood, school books covered in blood, people understandably wailing, incredibly emotional. One clip uh, showed a father trying to comfort uh, two girls, telling them that he would find their sister. Uh, another clip showed a woman very visibly distraught. And all of this is, as you were mentioning, they're targeting Kabul's western neighborhood that is predominantly Shia, Hazara. This is a community that has come under attack in the past. When I say in the past, over the course uh, of the last years, as violence in Afghanistan uh, flared and then, relatively speaking, came under control to a certain degree. But just as recently as last year, May 2021, this very same neighborhood was targeted. And in that attack that was targeting back then a girls school, 85 people were killed. And so if you're a citizen of that neighborhood today, if you're a citizen of Kabul or even just a citizen of Afghanistan, your reality has been shaken once again to the very core, Zane. That's heartbreaking. Our Damon live for us there. Thank you so much. The president of South Africa says his government has declared a national state of disaster after floods, mudslides and extreme weather devastating, devastated rather parts of the country. A week of torrential rains have left thousands homeless, more than 440 people dead and dozens missing. 10,000 troops are helping with rescue missions and providing medical support as well. A rescue team on a mission to find a woman missing since torrential rains swept through parts of South Africa. They zero in on the river. It's where locals say they found the remains of other victims. We are here looking for our neighbor who was swept away by the river. We are sure she was swept by the river because we have found her son, but we haven't found her. It's just one of several search operations underway in and around Durban. 
where emergency workers probe the banks of rivers and sniffer dogs comb through piles of debris to try to find dozens of people still unaccounted for. One relief official who just returned from the area says he hasn't seen this kind of flooding in decades. They've lost everything. Um, they've seen their houses being swept away. They've seen their livelihoods being swept away. And, you know, the situation is really quite dire. Officials say 10,000 troops have been activated to provide support for rescue missions, as well as to help clean up and bring aid to the more than 40,000 people left homeless from the floods. Disaster management workers and volunteers are packing water and other supplies to deliver to communities without clean water and power. Some places are already getting help now that floodwaters have receded in some areas. But authorities in the KwaZulu-Natal province say many roads and bridges are damaged or washed away. The devastation is so widespread, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a national state of disaster. This is a humanitarian disaster that calls for a massive and urgent relief effort. The lives, health and well-being of thousands of people are still at risk. With drier weather expected, officials hope to get a better look at the scale of destruction and begin the long process of recovery. After the break, overnight, the requirement to wear a mask on public transport in the United States comes to an end. And it was a judge who made the call, not the Centers for Disease Control. We'll have details coming up. After two years of strictly enforced mask wearing on board U.S. flights with a threat of criminal action against lawbreakers, these passengers are throwing them away with the blessing of cabin crew. That's after a judge rejected the CDC's mask mandate uh, for public transportation. Many airlines and the Transportation Safety Administration have already dropped the policy as well. Pete Montine is at Reagan National Airport for us in Virginia. It's important to mention, though, Pete, that mask mandates are still enforced uh, when you're traveling to countries where they are still enforced, where there's still a requirement. But here in the U.S., it is now optional on flights. Just walk us through what the reaction has been. You know, we're seeing here in Reagan National Airport, a place where I've been wearing a mask since the early days of the pandemic, about maybe 50, 75 percent of people still wearing a mask. Word still getting out there that the transportation mask mandate no longer in place on planes, trains, buses, boats. That also includes here inside of terminals. Went into effect in the early days of the Biden administration, February 2021. It was extended again and again. In fact, the most recent extension just last week would have pushed the expiration date to May 3rd. But now this court ruling by U.S. District Judge Catherine Kim Simple Mazel says this order initially exceeded the CDC's authority. And at first, through the travel industry and a bit of disarray, the White House, in fact, didn't even know how to react to it during the press briefing yesterday afternoon. Then the White House came out and said, yes, the transportation mask mandate no longer in effect pending a federal government review and that the TSA would no longer be enforcing the federal transportation mask mandate, mask rules. We have seen airlines over and over again say masks are now optional on board their flights. In fact, we've heard some of the announcements come out mid-flight, passengers finding out about this to some cheers. And there's been some celebratory reactions. Just listen to these passengers at New York's LaGuardia Airport last night. More comfortable without a mask. I feel 
very safe, especially since airplanes are one of the safest indoor places, you know, that I don't think masks are necessary. Even in traveling here and in, in being in downtown in New York and everybody not wearing, able to not wear masks and things, I felt much more comfortable keeping mine on. So again, Zane, masks optional for passengers and employees on U.S. airlines. Employees are key. They've been on the front lines of enforcing this transportation mask mandate. Latest FAA data says about 70% of all unruly passenger incidents just this year have had to do with masks. Also, masks not required on Amtrak and on Uber, we're just hearing as well, Zane. All right, Pete Montine, live for us there. Thank you so much. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. I'll be back with One World in a couple of hours. Connect the World. Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.